Hello and welcome to this video. You guys seem to quite like my last analysis of Jordan Peterson's video on killing your father. So today we're going to be talking about Jordan Peterson's message to those people struggling with faith, the relationship between faith and science, and also science and reason, all those things. So if you're interested in this video, then make sure you watch till the end. Also, in the last video, you guys said I should have made my bed. So well, you can see here, it has been made following Jordan Peterson's advice in 12 Rules for Life. So without further ado, let's get right into this video. It's incredible miracle of all, transcending even the 10 plagues, the crushing of Pharaoh's army, they're walking through a sea that uh, allows them dry land. Now they fear God and believe in God and believe in Moses. They have, they already have faith in both. For this, will, yes, yeah. this will last, right? You can count it in hours. It's, that is just, again, it's, such a, it's brilliant that it has that line. Hey, guess what? They just saw this and they have faith for a totally finite amount of time. Miracles don't work and people should not rely on them for faith. Well, that's the difference between faith and proof in some sense, right? That's a very, that's good. That's right. Yes. But even if you think proof, it doesn't last. Hmm. A miracle I mean, this is, of course, um, the key idea in the Bible of they have signs, but they do not see, or even if they see the signs, they will not believe. This is unbelieving generation. I think that that is quite true. Likewise, in some sense, you could see miracles and all these things, and they would probably still find a way. And what I mean, they, I'm talking about atheists, they might still find a way to explain it away. They might say, oh, Oh, those people are just hallucinating. Oh, there's some other theory for it. There's some other scientific feature, which we haven't discovered yet. They would turn to every single other possible explanation under the sun instead of pointing to God. And it seems that faith is actually completely separate to reason, not because they're in contrast to each other, but that belief in God cannot be reached purely through reason alone, because even if someone was given all the reason in the world, they still might not believe in God. Now, I'm not saying that this is a generalization to all atheists. I'm sure that there are people out there who, if they see a miracle, be like, oh, I believe now. But there are a lot of people out there who would not believe despite given a miracle. And as a result, when people say to me, well, why doesn't God just show himself to me? I'm like, well, have you not considered that even if you saw that miracle, you would just reject as a hallucination or any other kind of explanations that an atheist would give in response to the resurrection argument, for example? They, they would just say, oh, the resurrection was just a hallucination from the disciples, or it, it was just joint hallucination or group hallucination, or, or perhaps someone stole the body and miraculously somehow the body appeared talking to them, but that was just some other explanation. They would try to point to everything else apart from believing in God. So even if God showed you a miracle, you might not believe. So why are you asking God to show something to you, which you know you might not accept anyway? So that's just something to think about. I think it's quite interesting. Proof in some sense, if you think about it technically, proof can't work in relationship to the horizon of the future. Because if it's true that the future differs qualitatively from the past, which seems to be the case, that it's literally not predictable, then even if something did work in the past, that's the scandal of induction. Just because something did work in the past doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. And so that means that in some real sense, I think this is fundamentally true. In some real sense, you cannot confront the horizon of the potential of the future without faith. There, that is what you use to confront that. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, it's mere repetition of the past. In which case, it's not really the future at all. It's not potential. And so that must be associated too with that, the idea of the word that confronts potential at the beginning of the time. The time. That's truth serving love in some sense, but it's also. But I think um, here Jordan Peterson kind of conflates two different philosophical thoughts. There's a problem of induction philosophy and there's a problem of determinism. Are they the same things? They're, of course, they're kind of related. If, if, if you cannot believe in, the, your, in, in your, or if you cannot believe reliably in the, the continuity of nature and the uniformity of nature into the future, and that is what the problem of induction is, then of course you, the future isn't necessarily deterministic in the sense that you cannot determine the future. However, that is a different statement. That's a different truth claim to saying, well, actually the, 
the universe or the future is actually determined because one's an epistemic claim, the problem of induction saying, well, I cannot justifiably know the future. And the other one is an almost an ontological claim saying, well, actually the future is not determined. So there is a different claim there. Those are two different truth claims. And as a result, I think Jordan Peterson here is indeed conflating the two. And he says, well, problem of induction, therefore indeterministic future. I think he does develop on this further on in this video, but I, I just want to make it clear that the problem of induction does not lead to an indeterministic universe. It just means that you might not be able to know justifiably, epistemically, that the future is deterministic. However, I would agree with him by saying that on, on almost um, an atheistic, on a secular lens, you almost have that problem of induction, that the, the uniformity of nature almost is something that you, can, you have to presuppose, and that acceptance is an acceptance by faith. And from that perspective, I do agree with Jordan Peterson. I think the only problem here is just the conflation between the problem of induction, which is an epistemic problem, and also the, the, the question of determinacy or indeterminacy. And so, so science, now the natural scientists need a kind of degree of faith, a degree of credence. When, when you're trying to sort of make, make predictions, the scientists trying to make predictions and apply hypotheses, you're right. There is, well, well, the faith would be that that, that which corrects your prediction, because maybe you'd like your prediction to be true, but even more fundamentally, you have to believe that the transcendent object that corrects your presuppositions is good, yeah. and, and that I'm, making contact with that serves the good. Well, I think there is a problem here. I think, um, Jordan Peterson, I think this is something that Cosmic Skeptic um, does uh, bring out or does raise in his recent analysis on Jordan Peterson is he seems to bring in this transcendent object. And right now he's almost, well, you have to also presuppose that this transcendent object is good. It seems like a massive smuggling of, in of the God principle. And of course, as you view this channel, you know, I'm a Christian, but so I think it's almost an unwarranted leap into that transcendent object. Of course, you could say, well, from a problem of, of induction perspective, God is the best hypothesis to respond to that problem of induction. And in some sense, Descartes does this by saying that God is the best foundation or the best response to skepticism as a whole. Now, of course, that's not really induction, but of course, induction can be tied into skepticism because, of course, there's a skeptic um, kind of trend to both hypotheses. And as a result, in some sense, you could say that Jordan Peterson is following that Cartesian kind of landscape, that Cartesian structure by saying, well, actually that transcendent object is good and we have to presuppose it. However, I do think that tying in that transcendent object without calling it God or whatever is a bit vague because, well, what is that transcendent object and would a transcendent object actually um, explain induction? Perhaps not because, well, I think you have to be more specific about what actually is that transcendent object. Is that transcendent object God? Is that transcendent object celestial beings who aren't God? Is that transcendent object of platonic forms? Is it kind of some sense of um, pure being or energy which is transcendent or is it some form of other form of transcendent object? There's so many different transcendent objects out there that I think not all of them equally would have a respect or equally would have a um, impact on the problem of induction or on science, as Jordan Peterson suggests. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Otherwise, you'd think, you'd, you'd think more like Prometheus, right? You'd think, well, we don't want to make contact with the transcendent object as scientists because we'll be presumptuous, it'll just destroy us. Like if it is, and you know, for some reason to think that way, because God only knows what you're going to discover scientifically, but that isn't how scientists orient themselves. They think, well, we're following our internal logos and we're making contact with the logos of the world. And if we do that diligently and ethically, then the result will be good. That's a replication of the biblical pattern. Well, I think there is, um, he seems to be elaborating on it, that idea of of that transcendent object. So now he's calling that transcendent object the logos of the world. And well, of course, that brings back the biblical theme. And as a result, in some sense, the transcendent object is God, as he's suggesting here. But I'm, I, I'm just not really sure why he doesn't just say God in the first place. Or even when he's saying God, he says logos instead of God. Because in some sense, logos would not actually itself, the word itself, would not necessarily... Um, lead to a solution to the problem of induction. The word itself doesn't lead to the problem of induction. The solution of the problem of induction is almost a Malenbrankian um 
causation or a, or some, something which causes or creates the world to be in a certain way. And the Logos doesn't create. The Logos is a passive creation by God. It's the order which is created by God. So if you're looking at it from a kind of a tier list of different orders, you see the Logos is here. That Logos can only exist if God exists. But if you're only attributing to the Logos without God, well, that Logos itself does not have the sufficient explanatory scope. Yes, the Logos as as part of God's creation, does have explanatory scope, but just the Logos itself as a transcendent object becomes more of a platonic form than God itself. And as a result, there is still that gap there. And I think that Jordan Peterson does, in some sense, have to bite the bullet here and actually announce or pronounce his reliance on God as that transcendent object to make that even clearer in the situation. In some sense, at that point, science devours itself because I don't think there's any credible scientific evidence that we're deterministic. And I think there's a fair bit of credible scientific evidence that not only are we not, but we can't be, and neither is the world. It's more that there can't, couldn't possibly be scientific evidence that we are free. Because the determinist just says, it takes, takes a step of faith and says that all of our actions can be explained, all our behavior can be explained in terms of physical causes and physical effects. But the person who believes in free agency just says, that's not an exhaustive account of how we act. Now, there's no scientific way to settle that. You might say, look, I believe that I'm free, I believe that I can lift up this car. Mm. And I believe that more firmly than any skeptical argument well, you could bring. Penrose, Penrose certainly believes that we cannot compute the horizon of the future deterministically. And so even if we don't have free will, <laughs> we have something that isn't deterministic because determinism per se doesn't work. But Penrose does believe in proofs. He comes up with the famous Hawking Penrose singularity theorem behind, yeah. behind the Big Bang. So you can, yeah, he's a kind of Platonist as well. I think we talked about, talked about this before. So if you're kind of, you, you can say that there are mathematical proofs. There are proofs well, that are bound in the world. Sure. But they couldn't be in this as well in physical order. So you know, we'd be perfectly happy giving kids mathematics textbooks from the 1950s if they could still understand them. We'd be very worried if we were giving kids physics textbooks from the 1950s because science is moving along all, all the time. And so there does, there's just not, you know, skepticism is healthy in scientific inquiry. In fact, you can almost guarantee that science is going to be very different in 20, 30, 40 years' time. And yet it's, it's acquired this kind of secret status, scientific knowledge. A kind of, uh, this is actually the source of all certain. Well, science is actually the process, not the consequence in some real sense, right? Well, I think that that's an interesting point. I think there's a few interesting points here. Of course, here is where he's developing on the deterministic principle, and now he's focusing on determinism instead of the problem of skepticism. And I think in that sense, he, he is justifying the claims he made previously. And, and I think he recognizes that difference between, as I've said, the epistemic and the objective claim. And of course, he's talking about objective now, about what actually it's worth and how we analyze the world as it being deterministic or indeterministic. Now, of course, I would like to also know a further development to say an indeterministic world does not mean a free world. A random number generator does not consist of the freedom that we we like to say when I'm saying I'm acting freely, I'm not saying I'm acting randomly. When I say I pick up my pen, I'm not saying I'm picking up this pen on a random um, or on a random action based on some random impulses instead of actually saying there's a reason for why I pick up this pen. There's a reason why I'm writing my notes. There's a reason why I'm studying. There's a reason for why I'm doing something. There's a reason why I'm eating. When you're having that mindset of I'm acting with reason that and I'm acting freely, that is a different conception of freedom for, for from just saying, well, I'm acting randomly because you wouldn't say necessarily that a random number generator or a random number computer is acting in the same type of freedom as we are acting freely, even though that is indeterministic. So I think there has to be still a gap which is between the indeterministic nature of the universe and the free actions of causal agents, free causal agents in the world. There's still that gap that has to be drawn or that gap has to be bridged. And that's something which is very important to bear in mind. So let's carry on with the video of Scientist Apprenticeship. Well, if you're enjoying this video so far, make sure to like and subscribe. It really means a lot to me and really helps this channel grow. Also, if you'd like to support this channel financially, and of course, this is by no means obligatory, then feel free to check out our Patreon. The link's going to be in the description below. Yeah, I'm a uni student right now, so it really helped me continue this uh, mission of providing free and accessible and top quality philosophical content for all of you. Without further ado, let's carry on with the video. <laughs> well, certainly, well, one of the things you learned, Thomas, point point yourself, too, is that it's very, you cannot teach people to be a scientist by, you cannot teach a person to be a scientist by teaching them scientific doctrines or scientific facts. Because people like to think of science as a collection of facts, but if you look at how science is practiced, it's actually primarily a system of apprenticeship. So you go into a lab with a scientist who's a practitioner and a researcher, and you learn in an embodied sense how to conduct yourself as a researcher, and most of that, some of it's technical. 
Some of it's administrative, but a huge part of it is ethical. And that's especially true on the statistical front, because if you don't treat the revelation of your experiment 100% ethically, you won't discover anything that's real and you warp your career in the scientific enterprise. So fundamentally, what you're apprenticing in is an ethic of an ethic of humble, of humble approach and, and responsibility. And that's the embodied training as a scientist. And I think that that's a very interesting point. And I think a problem with a lot of new atheists and people on YouTube like to say, well, science is about a fact. It's about a bunch of things which are provenly true. And of course, if anything which goes against those facts, then, well, you're wrong and, and you're being anti-scientific. And then they start shaming you for that. And I, I'm not saying you should deny obvious facts like the earth is round and stuff like that, right? But what I am saying is that, well, a lot of people have to understand the methodology behind science. What actually is science? Science is a methodology. It's a way in which you're accepting a set of methods, a set of an ethical method framework about how you're going to go from experimenting and testing in the world. And of course, you could say falsification of our, or, or whatever theories you're trying, but essentially what you're doing is accepting a set of standards, a set of practices that you're going to implement when you're searching for the truth. And when you follow those standards and when you're following those procedures, then you'll get slowly towards a set of truth. And whether you actually get to those truths, it's a, it's a probabilistic claim. It's not necessarily an objective claim. So even if you say, well, water boils at 100%, 100 Celsius, right? If I boil this, it's going to boil. But is that 100% truth? No. Um, yes, it's a very high chance it's true, but it's still not 100% true. And that's something which you should bear in mind. Science is a methodology and not necessarily something which is about saying, well, okay, I've gotten a set of truth. I've created my crystal palace and then all good. Everything's good. Happy days. Bob's your uncle. That is not how science works. We see this a lot. It's in Hollywood, where, method, right, where there's a lot of courses and programs and degrees and certificates that teach you writing and you can study writing all the way through, but then you have all the skills and craft of writing, but then what are you going to write about? Because you've only been studying how to write, mm. right? And this is part of that. You and I, we talk about this a lot about that, the dislocation between avatars of meaning and what they're supposed to be attached to. It's like there's this floating away and it's the, it's sort of like the senseless rope work that's removed from the undergirding meaning. Mm. And all these yeah, and they attempt to reduce to method. Mm. Well, the ethic you talk about, the one of the maddest, maybe the only time my father got at me academically was in early high school and I was like debating, like fudging some results, exhausted at like two in the morning and nothing was working in the science lab. Mm -hmm. And he was like, there's no, like he was mad at me with the full fury of his Hippocratic oath as, oath as a physician. It was like, you don't do that. Right. You don't do that. That's not allowed as something that you can do. Right. Well, that's, well, not, I can't help but see that as a religious vow. It is. Like, and we'll not falsify the data. And that's the data. If it's real data, that's a pattern. There's a pattern in that. And what the data represents is the transcendent object. And, and that's a technical part of science because you're trying to falsify your hypothesis. Well, now, now of course, it brings back the transcendent object. And I, I'm not exactly sure um, what that means now. I don't think you develops it any further maybe it's part of his whole series on a uh, daily wire plus i'm not part of daily wire plus so i don't actually have seen the whole video but i think that's a good analysis of the situation the teaching methods is kind of like a lot of times we're teaching people how to do one plus one equals two but we're not teaching them why that is the case or the underlying philosophy which undergirds that what is what is actually algebra what is set theory we rarely teach that in the same way goes to writing you're taught uh essays should have this structure introduction um, argue, your thesis, your argument for, and your conclusion. Well, why do you argue in that way? Why is that a valid form of reasoning? Why do you go from an argument, the premises to the conclusion? Why don't you start with the conclusion and go to the premises, right? These are things that you should think about. And this is what I you're thinking about the, the philosophy behind it. And understanding that philosophy is almost just as, if not even more important than the actual thing that you're doing. Because the actual thing you can be doing can be wrong at times. And we've seen time and time again through history how what you're actually doing is wrong. But as long as you have the underlying premise correct and you understand the philosophy behind it, you ha still have a standard upon which you can change your incorrect beliefs. If you only have incorrect beliefs and you don't know why they're correct or incorrect, the standard upon which you're meant to judge truth from falsity, well, you'll never be able to develop and you'll never get closer to the truth. And that is precisely the importance of understanding the underlying philosophical idea. So that's it for the video. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you found it fruitful and 
helpful. Then make sure to like and subscribe. If you have any thoughts, ideas about what Jordan Peterson, what his guests have said, or my analysis of what he said, then let me know in the comments below. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to interact with you and wrestle with your ideas there. So stay safe, my friends. See you soon. Thank you for watching. Let me know your thoughts in the comments below, and I'll see you in the next one.